just through these interviews that we've done about meaning making, has your understanding of meaning and purpose shifted at all? I don't know. I don't think so. Like not, not broadly speaking, because mm. I, I felt like they were pretty generous definitions going in. Like mm. they, they weren't things that I was absolutely hard and fast on that somebody could chip away at. But I yeah. will say that they've been embellished pretty significantly. Like this thing I've been really kind of surprised by is just how many different interpretations of meaning making we've, we've gotten from people just yeah. by really tweaking the subject. Right. So I would say that they've been expanded upon in ways that I didn't expect. Yeah. But they haven't changed like categorically. Mm. How about you? Yeah, I would, I would say expanded. I would say like before we started these interviews, I had a very like individualistic understanding of meaning and purpose mm. that I didn't expect a lot of other people to share. And I've heard that echoed back from a few other people. Yeah. And so that that's felt good. And that has kind of made it less individualistic because when you hear a number of other people echoing back to you your own beliefs, then it becomes a collective belief instead of a individual one. So so in that sense, it's it's changed just because I'm looking at it as maybe not the right word, but groupthink more so than like my own kind of in a this is how I think in a vacuum, you know? Yeah. I kind of don't want to spoil this episode, but there's one guest of ours that did kind of reframe my understanding of meaning in terms of like the the role that you feel called to play in the world and that you assign yourself and kind of like the the agency that you give yourself to enact that role and that's largely kind of what we're what we're talking about in the grand scale of the of the season yeah that well that episode you just mentioned um we well I think we'll have to be pretty cagey about a lot of details in this yeah <laughs> there's, there's yeah. a lot of things that I think are going to get revealed throughout it. But I, I think this was one of the very first ones, if not the very first one we did for this, very first interview we did for this, um, where we just tried to define meaning and purpose. Yeah. Just dictionary definitions. And even that proved to be a bit more of an undertaking than we thought it would be because it was <laughs> like there's so many definitions of it. Um, so I brought up, I believe, the two that I think we were using. Sure. Which they sounded familiar, at least. So we at least discussed them. But yeah, meaning is the emotional significance of what we do, the importance we ascribe to something. It's why we do what we do. It doesn't just exist on its own. And purpose is the cumulative effect of meaningful goals, which I always felt like that pretty accurately described where I land on this too. Mm -hmm. But I thought that that episode we're referring to here really just kind of fleshed it out in in a cool way. And it was honestly something I wasn't sure was going to happen like the more we sort of settled into taping these interviews, the more it seemed like, wow, this is just a super interpretive <laughs> thing. Like I thought this was going to be more of a applying the same lens to a bunch of different people's experiences or a bunch of different disciplines. But it seemed like, oh, you can just change lenses all the time. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of a neat thing where it like almost just regrounded it back to that first point, which isn't to say that all the other lenses were wrong or that this lens w was the thing that restored it, but it was just neat to see that we could weave around this central path so freely and still kind of be within this this topic. Hmm. Yeah, and my and my interpretation of the definitions of meaning and purpose going into the season, and I'm sure that I elaborated on this a lot more in at least one of the episodes I don't remember at the moment but 
was basically that purpose is the lens and meaning is the role within the lens or uh, other way around. Meaning is the lens and purpose is the role within the lens. Yeah. So noticing that and just thinking more and more over the last year or so. And, and part of this has been because of my work with the liturgists and being a community fil- facilitator yep. in that scene, like seeing the people who show up week after week and the perspectives that they have of different topics and like seeing the roles that people play, you can see kind of a grander meaning making framework that maybe a lot of people do apply to their existence, but they all are willing to play, not even willing to play, but they all very naturally, almost deterministically fall into specific roles. And so like as a facilitator and as somebody who is constantly observing people's behavior, I'm always looking for like, well, what is the specific role that so-and-so is playing for a couple reasons? One, that means I don't have to fill that need. If someone is already filling that need and then, okay, that in a community sense, that's taken care of. Mm -hmm. Right. So I can look for a need that can be filled that I can better use my skills in order to fill. Right. Mm -hmm. And then second of all, like it gives you more to appreciate about a person, more about their individuality that you can recognize and, 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 and praise them for, or know that you can, you know, call on them for help when you need it in a, in that specific way that they are good at serving. Mm. And, um, yeah, so it's, as we've been learning more about meaning and purpose, it's, it's giving me more perspective on how people utilize their skills and whether that's skills of analysis, whether that's physical skills, whether that's like artisanal skills or, or anything, mm-hmm. It's just given me more of a perspective on the roles that people fill when they are called upon to fill them, you know? Yeah. And so it just, I don't know, it makes me think of a lot of the falling upward stuff about like the sharing from your, like developing a container and then sharing from your container. Yeah. That's been a constant, I think. Yeah. That's kind of what we're asking people. It's like, what is your container and what, and what are you determined to share from it? That has been really cool. How many, um, even the topics that we've tried to approach, more individually than others, or we tried to position as a more individualistic thing than other ones might be. Um, they've ended up back in that shared space, yeah, which has been, I don't know, very optimism affirming, I'd say, and like just it's it's a good result to have gotten from these. Mm-hmm. It's honestly been cool too, just asking people about these kinds of questions and sort of following the same format each time. Like, I don't want to say like it's like a social experiment, but just. I don't know, just actually organically uncovering that through line. Mm-hmm. Because I think that that through line is a really nice thing to just say exists because it's like it's way more comforting than assuming that it doesn't. But to actually be completely organically drawing it out of people or just people are volunteering it or whatever it might be so many times. And yeah, I mean, we've only taped like half of them. So, I mean, who knows what the other half will do, but just people across disciplines, across experiences and they, they're all kind of reaching to that place. It's, it's been a really kind of a cool thing to me and mm. yeah, very optimistic thing. Mm. One of the interesting through lines that I've seen is the ability for people to trust their intuitions. Yeah, it's huge. It's just like, what is, what is calling you at the moment and, and a certain amount of trust in the universe and a certain amount of trust in the person that you have developed into because that didn't happen for no reason. Like the person you, the specific skills that you have developed or the specific uh, framework that you have built through which to look at the universe 
you developed for a reason and it's helped you get this far. Don't be afraid to use that further. Yeah. It's also interesting to me that people, everyone has had something calling them. Yeah. Which this could be our sample. Like this could be that we're pulling from people that we know or people that people we know know. So it's probably more likely that those people have callings Mm -hmm. just based on kind of our crew. So I'd actually be kind of curious if we could find somebody Who's who doesn't <laughs> and it's like okay with that like not just somebody who's like horribly depressed but like somebody who just doesn't operate with those conditions in their mind like that would be kind of interesting to to talk to them but like the big Lebowski I'd be curious yeah how that would go yeah but like the role of like intuition and the role of a calling and that sort of universal thing like it's been an unquestioned thing every single mm-hmm. time we've talked to somebody yeah and the expression's been different each time but I mean. Yeah, I never even thought of that. And I wonder how important that is to the fact that like something like that is taken kind of for granted. Mm -hmm. Something like that is taken as just a given. I wonder if that's at the core of any of this offering us the assistance we need just as human beings. Something that hasn't come up yet in any of these interviews, Mm. they have and haven't come up, I guess, like, but not directly, Mm. is what you and I individually use for our own meaning making frameworks mm-hmm. or like the lenses that have been the most useful for us mm. what would you say that yours is if you had to distill it um shit <laughs> it's tricky <laughs> i see why our guests <laughs> always shift around and yeah, really. yeah. um I, I mean it's always closest to the existentialist stuff for me yeah i would say i always hover around that and I mean, that's been the case for the last few years, probably. But mm. in a sense, it's been kind of my whole life. It's, it's just probably the most distilled within the last few years. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it's not a super exciting answer to that. But it's somewhere it's like I'm not dismissive of reality or of possibilities right? or of things being exciting. But I've also really lost my um, taste for magic in the way that I had it when I was younger. Yeah. I was just going to mention that too. Like, I think that my theory and my practice are different. Mm-hmm. I think that in practice, I'm much more of the, like, especially ha- since, since reading existentialism and human emotions and kind of like dancing around with a, a number of other existentialism adjacent theories. Yeah. That's the most realistic framework yeah. right, that I can say I employ every day and think the most about. Yeah, But where the magic is for me is, I don't know what to really call it, but there's definitely a word for this. Maybe it's just mysticism. Mm. But a few examples would be like, there's a magical element of art where I don't know where it, why it just comes to you sometimes. Mm. I don't know why certain lines of poetry just appear in your head and then they have to become a thing. Yeah, I don't know why art is sentient sometimes. Yeah, Writers like Stephen Pressfield talk about this and um elizabeth gilbert talks about this like that that art looks for a way to find identity in the universe right yeah and i think that a lot of things are like this and maybe this is just like a blanket word for it would be like a mystical approach yeah but i i do get a lot of like helpful magical thinking thinking about spirit i suppose like mysticism and spirit and like what does spirit mean Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I was really like framing it this way before, but thinking about things like the Holy Spirit and the, and the, in the Trinity, mm-hmm. you know, in Christianity 
It's like, what does that actually mean? And if you took it out of the religious context, like it still does mean that people tend to share an appreciation and a, and a, and an earnestness and like a sense of joy and a sense of pain and a sense of sorrow and a sense of mirth and everything. Like those things don't deviate so far individual to individual that they can ever be fully extricated from, from like the broad spectrum of human emotion. They don't vary too much individual. So what I'm saying is like, there's something that is just in the air. There's something that's just intangible but we know it when we feel it. Yeah. And it's like those little elements that connect us to others. Yeah. And that like when we read a really good line of poetry that employs great metaphor, we're like, oh, yeah. Because we, we feel seen as humans when other people express things in art. Yeah. That reflect what our experiences are. And the more universal those experiences are and the more universal those metaphors tend to be, the better they feel to experience yeah. when you read them. And there's those kinds of things. And so I've mostly contemplated it with art. Mm -hmm. um, I've contemplated it a little bit with like, you know, breaking bread with people, having any kind of like shared, uh, I guess that goes back to art, but like a, con a concert going experience or like a festival going experience or something. Like what is it that bo like bonds people during those moments? What is it that, what is it about a shared experience? that feels so good to us. And some of it is probably just like vestigial tribal identity, but I think a lot of it is just spirit mm -hmm. and, and that which, so I think that that would be the, the mystical approach. And then more realistically, existentialism is, <laughs> is the truer answer. Well, that's why I like the existentialist answer. And I think I've, I've lingered on it for longer than other ones. And I mean, there's definitely different readings of it. Because you can see, like, there are definitely some existentialists that are more religious than others. Some are a little more depressive than others. Like, there's different ways, I guess, you can take it. But yeah, the way that I read the Satra one was the one that really resonated with me the most, and it provided enough structure and enough doctrine to satisfy that day-to-day -day part of me. That mm -hmm. is the part that realistically is the only part that needs the through line. You know, because. Yeah. The part of me that's okay, like the part of me that is grasping into the heavens, trying to figure out what's all up there. Like, I'm good with magic. I'm good with science. Like, wherever I am in that moment, I will be content to use that as a basis for exploring. Mm -hmm. But the reasons I would need a structure or a doctrine are for those kind of uncertain, more pedantic, in between moments. And I really like that the existentialist approach really kind of it provided enough structure but it also left things so open-ended mm. without it feeling like a cop-out. It was just kind of like the absolute minimum amount of structure and the absolute maximum amount of certainty yeah. without starting to get into these presuppositions and assumptions and things that tend to start to fall apart when your mood shifts or when history sort of doesn't hold up against reality or whatever it might be. And, and that's where I've always broken with a lot of other approaches to meaning making is like at a certain point you you can start to disprove it but existentialism all it said to me was like you didn't ask for this that doesn't matter mm -hmm. get up you got to do something with it now mm. and that's objectively true as much as anything can be <laughs> and uh you know it's like if i'm thinking about those questions and i'm some level I'm, I'm thinking about why i'm asking them yeah. And I might not be entirely happy with that. 
but it doesn't change the reality that like in that moment I'm supposed to figure it out. Yeah. And then beyond that, I could be getting help from something in the universe. I could be getting help from a person. I could be reading the right books. It could be just discipline until I die. It could be anything it needs to be, but it's just, there's a bucket. You got to go fill it. Mm. And I, I kind of like that. Like it's, yeah, it's just, it's simpler than a lot of other approaches that I've seen. And it really kind of struck me because it's those presuppositions and things really just turn me off after a while. Yeah. And so many philosophies, they just, they act as if, okay, I figured it out. Like we're automatons, like there's people pulling the strings or I figured it out. Like there is one creator and only that creator. And I'm like, if that works for you, great. But I've never been able to sit on those for too long. Yeah. And it's almost like an existentialism. And, and the reason why I'm able to hold on to this without it being like an ideology that I firmly adhere to or anything yeah, is that when you say like it has the maximum amount of certainty, I think the most certain thing mm. is that you will be uncertain. The most certain yeah, thing exactly. yeah. is, is that <laughs> no. there will be mystery and there is literally no requirement that you solve it. Yeah. And having taken that requirement out of it gives you all the agency in the world. Mm-hmm. And so like I personally for the past five or six years have just been getting a lot out of mystery. And I guess the reason I tend to contextualize this within a more artistic realm is that that's where I first started to explore that mystery. It's like when I started, when I stopped writing so autobiographically or like having certain goals with my art and then was like, oh, I'm going to be a folk singer now. And that I think is one of the perfect mediums to to explore these, these, these haunting questions, you know, Mm -hmm. that, that everyone has to try to answer for themselves. And what, what a better way to explore mystery than to just, you know, we're doing this open mic over zoom a few weeks ago. And there was one guy that shared a song. I don't remember the exact lyrics, but his chorus was like, maybe where are this, maybe where are this. And I said to him, man, I love, I love a lyric. That's just a series of maybes. I really do. Yeah. <laughs> like it's not exactly a framework. Like it's not a lens, yeah. but I love a good maybe because that admission that things might not be the way that we were taught they are, or things might not be the way that we assume they are. And that there's always a little bit more room for exploration that's kind of what I think that 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 spirit that I was talking about compels me to do is like I want to explore why it's there and what it does, yeah. And what kind of experiences can be created from that thing? So if my <laughs> lyrics and my life are just a series of maybes, yeah. I'm I'm totally cool with that because it means that I've never lost the ability to explore what it takes to make meaning and what it takes to share the experiences of making meaning with others. Yeah. And that it's such a healthy way to engage that part of ourselves. I think like embracing that mystery and embracing that maybe is like, that's kind of, that's been the through line with these two, like, like so many healthy ways of answering these meaning making questions involve just kind of learning how to sidle up to those ambiguities and, and, live amongst them and Mm. yeah I've realized a similar thing where it's like I don't even care really what somebody's orientation or background or anything is as long as there's a little bit of room for enjoying those those uncertainties 
Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the existentialist shit, I guess. But it's that's been the purest understanding of meaning making that I've probably had in my life. Yeah. Had been kind of recently. And like through those types of lenses. I remember talking with Devry in her episode about like how ambiguity can can be terrifying. Yeah. But I find a lot of comfort in it. And I haven't always. Yeah. Definitely since I turned 30 and maybe a little bit before that, I've always found ambiguity very comforting. But that's something too. I don't think it always has to be. Yeah. To just like, it's great when it is. But the thing that's interesting to me about like the meaning making question is that like, it doesn't always have to equate itself with, with joy. You know, it's like, it's just like, what's going on right now? Why are you doing this? And where are we going? And because, yeah, I, I agree with her that, like, ambiguity can be absolutely terrifying. As much as I enjoy the uncertainty, it's like there are so many times when I'm like, I don't want that anymore. I just want an answer. But this is where I always break with stuff like nihilism, which we must have talked about on that. But yeah, in case we didn't go into this aspect of it, like, I've always broken with it because it's like, what is it about your specific pain in this moment that changed the tilt of the universe? Like, that's not that doesn't make any sense. And I'm sure it hurts so badly. Yeah. Or you're so scared or so confused and that's not to be understated, but does that change like what's actually going on? Hmm. And so often it doesn't, you just really want it to, because it's the only way you can make that mean something. And so with like nihilism and stuff, it's like, Oh, life is pointless because I'm so fucking sad. It's like life is not pointless. That's also following intuition, though. Yeah. Like, if anything, you know, and we've probably done this to death, so sorry. But <laughs> if anything, I think we've always maintained that my, that nihilism can act just as well uh, as a milestone or just as yeah, well yeah. as a, you know, you've used the word holding pattern for it before. But, like, yeah, sometimes things are so overwhelming that you don't want to lend them significance. And so taking all the significance out of everything is the only way that your intuition can help you to make sense of the goings on. Right. So there are certain kinds of suffering or certain kinds of disillusionment or disenchantment that can only lead that way. can only lead to like, well, I guess nothing matters, nothing's sacred. And I think intuition also works from there to help you to rebuild. Yeah, definitely. But nihilism is a state of deconstruction. Yeah. And meaning making is all about construction. And so, yeah, I don't think that I've, I've never thought that nihilism is, is valueless, but yeah, just to repeat it, like I think that intuition plays a role in deconstruction just as much as it plays a role in construction. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. And I think at the time I drew a comparison between um, nihilism and shock, yeah. like physical shock too, yeah. which I still kind of stand by. And that's why I do think it has that value that like it's the same as like if you got, you know, hit by a train and lost your leg, you might not feel pain right away Mm -hmm. because you can't, you just shouldn't and can't. And it's a great thing that the body can do to sort of like shut things down at that moment. And, but the important part is that they kind of come back, but it doesn't change the, the reality of what's going on in that moment, you know, like you're still missing that leg. And I think that's where long-term nihilism to me always felt kind of abrasive because it's like, it would imply that you never had a leg to begin with and no one has a leg. You're just 
we're all just one-legged people mm. gimping our way towards the grave. And it's just flawed. But if you look at it like, yeah, right now things have just powered all the way down. Mm. I think that has tremendous value. But it, it's weird to me to call those kinds of philosophies philosophies. Mm. You know, like it, they don't see, like they have value, but it doesn't feel like they should be elevated to the level of something that provides a framework for living mm. and should be generalized. You know, like why would you write a book about that? It's like, why would you become a doctor of first aid? You'd become a doctor. You'd know how to do first aid, but you'd also know how to heal. That's what's always felt funny to me about the finality and the certainty of really nihilistic. And I've been as depressed as they come. Like, so I definitely want to disambiguate this from sadness or from loss or grief or, you know, feelings of any sort that might lead you to that place. Like all of that is valid. Yeah. But empirically speaking, as far as defining meaning and defining a worldview, that one's just always felt insane. Hmm. Which again is why the existentialism thing kind of clicked for me because it took some of those things that have drawn me towards more depressive philosophies and put them in a basket that had room for agency and then kind of prodded me towards using it mm. without being in my face. And that was a really powerful light bulb moment when that happened. Interestingly enough, I've been feeling myself become, I don't know if nihilist is the right word, but nihilistic about mental health and kind of like therapy adjacent things. Yeah. Where there was a point in time where I was, you know, a little bit, I was into it, like a little bit kind of obsessed with it. And I go through those phases, you know, those those healing phases. Those are important. You go through mm -hmm. them every once in a while. But kind of the talking points that used to be interesting to me are no longer interesting to me. Mm. And I don't know if that's nihilism or just disinterest. <laughs> but there's <laughs> like... <laughs> <laughs> but there's like a... What are some good examples here? I feel like in like 2018, 2019... When did self-care become a buzzword? Like, this is what I'm talking about. Like, oh, 2017, yeah. 2018, around yeah, that time. Like, yeah. yeah. I feel like around that time, I definitely had more of a, an interest, like an, at least an intellectual interest in mental health. Maybe wasn't yeah. doing so much of the emotional work at the time, which is not yeah. to say that I haven't done it since. I think the pandemic actually forced a lot of people to do it. But... Like, what was being talked about in the cultural conversation then, I'm now disinterested with. Mm. It's just that I did so much work on everything. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't call myself an anxious person anymore. And despite having gone through, like, a very intense depression about a year ago, yeah, I wouldn't say that I, like, sure, I have a history of anxiety and sure, I have a history of depression, but I don't define myself by those things anymore. So, like, I, I think I've grown out of certain pathologies yeah which is a natural thing to happen especially like if you're addressing them in the right ways and i'm not claiming that i have addressed them in the right ways always but i must have done something right <laughs> um my anxiety is low my stress isn't low but my anxiety is low mm. like doing more body work through meditation and stuff like that because all of my anxiety has mostly been hypochondria based mm learning to tune into my body a little bit more and know that it's not betraying me in the way that ways that I think it is. I'm not as bad of a hypochondriac anymore. Yeah. My anxiety is real low is the point. And a lot of the other things I just found I had, I had tied up in my identity so much, the elements of my life that were causing me to 
have bad, have poor mental health in the past. Yeah. We're just me obsessing over identity. We're just me yeah. obsessing over how I was seen. And we're just me obsessing over like little, little things, you know, like just ego stuff. Yeah. And it's not to say that I've like really gotten over all of it, but like ego stuff plays less and less of a role in my life. And I'm also not yeah. claiming that I'm like anywhere near enlightenment, nor am I trying to be, but, <laughs> and it's not to say that I don't still need therapy. <laughs> Please don't hear me making any of these claims because yeah. I'm not. But I'm experiencing a disinterest in the aspects of mental health that are most commonly present in the cultural conversation about mental health. Obviously, I believe that they're important for for people to be talking about. Yeah. But there's a point at which focusing too much on your own story becomes a practice of inflating the ego. Yeah. And becomes like an obsession of, of of the self. And then who are your, you, then that's, that becomes self-serving. Like you're, you're not unable to serve the world and others if too much fixation is put on that process, on yeah. processing your own story rather than the stories of those around you. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, definitely. And it doesn't sound like nihilism to me either. Well, yeah, I guess it's it sounds like, it sounds like growth, you know, <laughs> just like, yeah. You're understanding what you learned during that period of time and yeah. taking it to heart and moving to the next thing, which like that's at least what I've taken from that. And it sounds like a very healthy thing because mm. it's funny the way like and I'd say cultural conversation would be two of the operative words around this one, too, because yeah. the way that it was discussed back then, it always reminded me of like like everyone just discovered nutrition at the same time. <laughs> yeah. It was like that kind of mental health conversation, which like I'm with you that it's a valid thing and a valuable thing. And it doesn't like, it's not something I want to really shit on because even at the times when it was a little bit of like, like I remember when everybody figured out like what it was like to be sad during the beginning of the pandemic. And it was like, okay, like yeah. a little bit of an eye roll to some of those things. But at the same time, it was like, it's a very good thing that people were having these conversations finally. And, or understanding that like you can go to therapy and it doesn't have to be a whole stigmatized deal. And like some of that stuff is really good, but Mm -hmm. after a while it's like, yeah, you shouldn't be paying the same amount of attention and putting the same amount of intellectual energy into this stuff as you did when you first read that psychology today article or whatever it was that turns you on to it because it's, it's just not new anymore. And there's only so much information, unless you say this made me want to be a psychologist or, you know, you, you start like pursuing some aspect of it or aspects of it that are really interesting to you and it can grow with you. Then it, it just gets old. Like you've just, you've done it, you've learned it. And you know, it's like, again, if you compared it to like nutrition or something and you discovered that like, Oh my God, I can only have a certain amount of salt and a certain amount of sugar and carbs and things every day. And you know, I should have this many vegetables or whatever. So like in the beginning, you're like measuring shit out with measuring cups and spoons and like putting it all in a blender and being really scientific about it. If you just say like the only way to have meaning around this is to live the rest of my life where my kitchen is now a lab bench, like that's crazy. Like you're going to be miserable. But if at a certain point you take the... Sorry, finish your thought. But just at a certain point you can consolidate that knowledge into like, okay, like so eating raw foods is good eating these types of foods is good because they have all these ingredients. And now I'm, I'm the level of healthy that I'm content with being for where I am right now. And I can kind of 
adapt this as I go, as I need to, then loosening your grip on it isn't an unhealthy thing to me. Well, and I was going to add the reason that cultural isn't is a very important operative word there is that with both mental health and nutrition, with both those examples, you could bet that there is somebody to appreciate it with you. And then mm-hmm. suddenly you're going like, oh, you know how we're all focusing on nutrition right now? I think yeah. I figured it out. I think I figured I got the formula right, you know, and then somebody <laughs> yeah. is tasting the food that you painstakingly put together based on the nutritional requirements that you've both recently discovered. And they're like, dude, you did figure it out. Good job. And you're like, I feel so appreciated right now. And I feel seen. Likewise, if there's a cultural conversation <laughs> around self-care and mental health and you're like, oh, this is the perfect opportunity to share from my story and feel seen and say like, oh, this is how I've experienced. We're talking about anxiety. Everyone's talking about anxiety. This is how I've experienced anxiety in the past. Please see me. Please hear me. And so there's also this like really gratifying expectation. The same thing happened at the beginning of the pandemic or like, you know, up to a year into the pandemic, really, where like you could call anybody and it got tedious sharing from your experiences (laughs) about like, oh, this is the toll it's taking on me now. But you could call up anybody and there was automatic empathy. Yeah. Automatic. No matter what you were saying, even if they weren't experiencing or feeling the same thing the way that you were feeling it they still got the inception of it they still got like there's a what's the word the catalyst is the same for it but they, they can see how you got there right yep so i think like the, the cultural piece of that is really important too because then it's just like everybody is primed to hear the same kind of information and when that's the case when there's something permeating culture that has primed everybody to hear you and your experience see you and your in your experience and validate your feelings. Then yeah. that's where that come from. Yeah, and maybe I just kind of had enough of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think that's wrong. It's like, it's just, again, I can just think about it as, as a growth thing. It's like, you just kind of, if you're inquisitive and if you're just thinking about, like you enjoy thinking about things and mm-hmm. you enjoy mystery, honestly, like we just talked about, like yeah. At a certain point, you're going to start looking for new ones. And it doesn't invalidate the results of the old one or even the joy and solidarity that you felt. Right. It's just, you've done that thing, now there's another thing. And it is just interesting that it happened around that conversation, like around the mental health conversation, because it's, it almost sometimes, when I think back to that, it makes it feel like it was a fad. It was. Yeah, well, parts of it were, but parts of it have lasted too. Yeah. And I mean, we're still can't talking. Really say the same about parachute pants. About what pants? Parachute pants. Oh, pants. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very true. There are. I mean, I think it has persisted in the right ways. You know, like the ways in which we're still talking about setting boundaries. The ways in which we're yeah. still talking about consent. The ways in which we're still talking like toxic masculinity versus healthy masculinity and stuff like that. Yeah. Like that was all, those were all big in the cultural conversation then. They still are now. They become more nuanced now and more digestible because they become more nuanced. Yeah. So there are a lot of things that are still happening in that conversation that make a lot of sense and are very helpful. Mm -hmm. And then there are a lot of things that were just kind of, it's almost like the performative activism stuff. Mm-hmm. that we've been talking about like there are there are things that exist that that come about as fads and exist as fads that give us a platform from which to speak and be heard and that's the yeah, most absolutely. that they do and so there was almost like a virtue signaling version of 
<laughs> I struggle with yeah. mental health too. And everyone does. And of course everyone does. And no one, yeah. was, no, it's not like anyone, everyone was lying. It's not like everyone was just like, oh, let me join in here. Cause I, I want to tell my sob, sob story. Yeah. You know, that's not, I'm not making that claim, but like there is very much a, a soapbox thing to it where like, or like a, like a, everyone can take the talking stick at some point. Yeah. You know, like everyone has, has that right. And I think people took full advantage of that and it's a good thing, you know? Yeah. But I think for some people it was more of an exciting thing than a persisting thing because they just needed, needed to be heard and it was a good opportunity to be heard. Yeah. And it was, it was an acknowledgement of, um, of like humanism and empathy too, I think in a way that wasn't accessible yeah. in those areas before. Cause there's that weird paradox where like you want to normalize or at least within the context of that conversation specifically, it's like we kind of wanted to normalize mental health care and mental health disorders and even getting rid of using the word disorder. Yeah. But you also wanted to elevate it. Even if that wasn't explicitly said, it was like, we want these things to be special because they feel like they should be either special or horrific in some cases. So, mm. But you also want to normalize them so that they're not pathologies or normalize getting help so that it's not this clandestine thing every single time you have to do it. And I always kind of was struck by how interesting that result was where you've got this like, I don't know, like profusion of culture around being mentally not okay at points in your life, mm -hmm. but also wanting to normalize it to where it becomes just a kind of banal part of being a human being. And that's where I'm going to tie this back in and use some different language because I said performative activism before. And I think what we saw a lot of and what we probably still see a lot of and what I've been guilty of for sure is performative vulnerability as opposed to authentic, <laughs> genuine vulnerability. And that's also not a bad thing. Like there are certain point, there are certain degrees of performative where I think it can get bad. Um, yeah. For example, if you are, what's the, in the better call Saul, where the guy is showing up at the support group lying about his dead wife. Oh you know? yeah, yeah. Like I would call yeah. that performative vulnerability because it's purely performative because yeah. it's completely false. Right. So like that gets bad, but like performative vulnerability, speaking from a place of truth, but not allowing yourself to be fully vulnerable mm. is not a bad thing. Like it, it still encourages vulnerability, you know, yeah. performative in the sense that you're getting attention is not great, yeah. but there is a small, at least a small degree of that, that doesn't really do any harm because it's, it's still normalizing vulnerability. It's still normalizing those stories that people do have that deserve to be heard out. And some of it too, it's, it's almost like... I'm really not nihilistic about this, am I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it's in, the vulnerability side of it is interesting to me too, because there is some of the ways that, it, that that is discussed is and the ways that I've definitely felt it at times. Um, it's vulnerability relative to the kind of walled off existence that we're accustomed to, at least here in this country now. Like, I don't want to generalize this to like the human species, but sometimes it's less of a vulnerability thing and more of a not overdoing it mm. thing with the walls. Mm. Yeah. Because some of the ways that we talk about like being vulnerable, but like not excessively vulnerable. It's like, well, it's kind of just being human. Like we're just not hiding shit. 
yeah. that right. would take really like significant effort to hide. We're making the decision to not straight up lie when we leave our house. Right. And I think that there's a middle ground, like a huge middle ground between that and being vulnerable, truly. Because it's the difference between like an animal coming out with its claws out versus walking down the street or standing versus lying on its back. To me, vulnerability is lying on your back exposed. And healthy vulnerability is doing that in a setting where that's okay. And you can experience like the intimacy of human connection where they're not going to kill you and you realize, oh my God, I can be seen here. And the claws out one is not a normal state, but it can be a very healthy, understandable state depending on what your deal is at the time. But that middle ground is like, that's just living. You're not under threat. You're, like you're in kind of an equilibrium. You're not under threat. You have no reason to suspect that you're safe enough to just flop over, mm. which is the case most times in most people's lives. Mm. And so to me, that's not, it's not a vulnerability thing. And that was how a lot of that conversation scanned to me sometimes was, yeah. You, I guess, yeah, like relative to having your, your dukes up, you're, you're vulnerable. I think you're just describing authenticity plus healthy boundaries. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think this just kind of occurred to me too, is like, I, I, I guess I'm just now, maybe not just now, it's been a while. I think the pandemic helped with boundaries. Like you, you had to be good at them. Yeah. You had to be honest about what your, what your expectations were about masks and stuff like that. So in a very literal way, you had to put up boundaries, you had to put up barriers yeah. between you and other people's breath. But that might have primed me to do the work that I'm that I've been doing lately where I don't know if I'd call it boundary work, but I think lately this is so funny because I was just saying I'm disinterested in mental health. <laughs> I think I've just moved on to a different yeah. branch of it and the old way, the the five the mental health of 5 years ago is now uninteresting to me. But yeah. Now I've been really doing the work on what I can and can't hold space for. And I think that mm. that, that, that falls in under the umbrella of boundaries. Because lately I've just been thinking about like, what do I have the energy for? And the delineation between emotional energy and intellectual energy. Yeah. That's kind of what I've been really doing the work for. And like where I want to put my boundaries, I'm not going to say where I put my boundaries because I'm not going to purport that I'm good at putting them up at all but and so okay this is the thing <laughs> I feel like I've stopped being performatively vulnerable in the way that I might have been four or five years ago and I've yeah. started thinking more conceptually mm. about stuff and so the most recent thing that I'm kind of pondering is intellectual versus emotional energy and mm. we often maintain an emotional energy for certain things in our lives and certain people in our lives. And then there are other things and people and whatever in our lives where we can really only devote intellectual energy to it. Yeah. And I think the difference has so much to do with kind of to tie it back to the main conversation here is like the difference has so much to do, I think with how we make meaning and the purposes that we believe in and the roles that we believe that we're supposed to be serving in the world, you know? So like, what are you investing emotional energy in and does it does it contribute to the role that you play in the world yeah what do we invest our intellectual energy in all that information has to funnel through 
you to serve something, right? Like whatever mm-hmm. information you let in, whether it's emotional, intellectual, spiritual, social, yeah, whatever, it all has to funnel through and be distilled into the purpose that you serve, right? And like, yeah. and the person that you are and the role that you want to play in the world. And so that's kind of where my head has been for the past six months, at least. Like, what am I fighting against? What am I fighting for? What do I have the energy to do? What do I need to let others do? Mm. Because others are better at it than me. What purpose do I ultimately want to serve in the world? And what what is my role within that purpose? And what deserves my attention, given that information, given that determination? Am I going to let this in? Am I going to let this in? Do I necessarily need to keep this out? Do I, yeah. you know? So I think it's ad- adjacent to boundaries. Mm-hmm. But the circles that I'm drawing now and the wall, whatever walls I am putting up now, even though I do consider myself an open book most of the time, but I do need to put up those walls occasionally. I do need to create the right kinds of barriers that allow me to exist with the purpose that I have created for myself and the purpose that I believe in and not always let in the information that like would persuade me otherwise. You know, so like that's yeah. why that's why those boundaries are sometimes important with parents. My parents want me to be doing a different thing for a living. And the more I hear that information, the more I shut down. And I don't want to do anything for a living. So I need to just not hear it. Right. Yeah. Some people want me to be an activist in ways that I'm not. And mm-hmm. I only have so much energy to be an activist in other ways. Yeah. So get out of here. I'm going to die on my own hill. Right. Yeah, but that's not to say that I can't hold intellectual space for that. I just can't hold emotional space for it. Yeah. Please tell me all about the cause that you're fighting for. Yeah. I'm intellectually interested. Do not ask me to develop a fiery passion for it. Yeah. So it's all these things like what walls you put up between you and other things, what circles you have to draw so that some people are excluded and you can be included. It's becoming more and more important to me, but I think that It's becoming important to me because, especially this year, the things that I've been contemplating, I've realized why boundaries are important for more than just mental health and are important, additionally important for things like meaning and purpose. Yeah. And I think I've been bad at drawing them for mental health and getting better at drawing them for for meaning. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I really like that distinction between... uh, like emotional intellectual energy too. That's uh, that's a valuable one. Yeah. And honestly, I mean a lot of that that you just described, I think, is a very good buffer against something like nihilism or against some of those just overstimulation sorts of like just shutdowns that can happen. Yeah. Around meaning making and, and finding your purpose. Just understanding that those are different things. Like you don't even have to be incredible at protecting them or replenishing them or whatever you just just the freedom in knowing that those are two different sets of faculties is huge 